Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Jabal, and this is a MindPair podcast next round conversation. We're bringing you these conversations in between our regular podcast episodes so we can explore more stories and uh, ideas in the world of drinks. Today, I have the pleasure of joining in person, as hard as it is to believe, uh, Matt Hoffman, who is the co-founder and managing director at Westland uh, Distilling here in Seattle. Matt, thanks so much for your time. Oh, thanks. So we're, uh, we're thankful that we're able to actually have you here in person. We've totally forgotten how to do things like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I hope that this sounds good to you all. There's a background noise, but I figured, like, again, you've been hearing us in our sterile home environments for over a year now, so this is a little uh, little excursion. Yeah, these are authentic distillery sounds. Exactly, exactly. So let's actually start with a little history of the distillery. So um, when was Westland founded, and um, kind of what was the idea behind it uh, when, when you know, it was just an idea? Yeah, we were officially founded in 2010. So we founded the business uh, in September of 2010 and really started a full-scale production in June of 2011. So we've been in, in production of whiskey for, for 10 years. And the core idea behind Westland has always been very simple, which is to make something that is reflective of place. And for us here in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle, what that has meant is American single malt whiskey that is evocative of the Pacific Northwest. And a lot of people think you're an American distillery, so you should be making bourbon. But actually, we're, you know, we're a long ways away from Kentucky, literally as far from Kentucky as you can get. This is barley country up here. This is one of the best places to grow barley in the world. We believe at Westland that whiskey should be connected to agriculture. That might sound obvious, but I don't think actually a lot of other distilleries believe that, but we really do. So because this place is a great uh, barley growing part of the world, we believe we should be making single malt. And, you know, I want to get into this idea of single malt whiskey as a way to express a sense of place um, and talk about some of the things you're doing. But but first, just to, to give a little more background for people, um, how did you learn to make single malt whiskey? Like, I feel like most people, you know, again, bourbon, not that everyone in America knows how to make bourbon, quite obviously they don't. But, you know, I, I think sometimes people would think exactly what you said. Oh, you're an American whiskey distiller. Bourbon would be the natural go-to. So, so how did you learn to make single malt whiskey? Well, the first thing for me in particular was, was looking at the history of whiskey and the history of single malt. I mean, all whiskeys can trace their lineage back to single malt distillers, you know, in Scotland or Ireland 500 years ago. So there's that historical element to it. But, but even right away, early in my career, I mean, I'm from here, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. Um, we know that barley comes from here. You can buy malted barley here as well. And we're also surrounded by a culture of malted barley. I mean, this is the Northwest Crap brewing revolution started out here. So you see people using malted barley all the time. It's not a big jump when you look at that raw ingredient. Um, so for us, it was very simple. Like this thing grows here. Uh, it's used here all the time by brewers and there's, a, and there's a whole culture around that. Why should we not be making single malts? And it's interesting because that, that line of thought actually started you know, you know, right from the beginning in our business and we started experimenting with that same line of thought and, and way of thinking like a brewer would, the way that brewers look at malt for flavor and things like that. At the same time, I was going through formal education in brewing and distilling science, uh, both at the Institute of Brewing and Distilling in London, as well as uh, Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland. So I was getting this kind of like learning from scratch, you know, based on the cultural elements of the Pacific Northwest, while at the same time also getting the formal education that you'd get out of the UK, and those two things eventually came together. Very cool. 
And so I know when Westland started, um, a lot of the projects that have since come to fruition were maybe not even conceived of or were ideas that were far, you know, it seemed far in the future. I mean, you and I have chatted on a number of occasions in a number of different settings. Um, and I know that for for you, I think all along the idea was to, to be able to add in more and more elements of the Pacific Northwest, uh, as you said. So for, for people who are maybe aren't as familiar with some of the products that are out there, what are, what are some of the different ways in which maybe we'll talk barley in a little bit, but, but outside of barley that you've brought elements of the Pacific Northwest into the whiskey? Yeah, so if we, if we zoom out to 30,000 feet and you look at what does it mean to make something evocative of place? Mm-hmm. To me, there, there are two parts of that equation. The first thing is, you know, the, the physical impact of the place that you're living in, the geography, the climate, the agriculture, all of that stuff. Uh, as I said before, you know, this is a barley-producing part of the world. Uh, we actually grow barley better here than they do in Scotland, believe it or not. It's that might be a, controversial. It, I mean, I'll go ahead and, you know, <laughs> if anybody wants to challenge me on it, let's do it. But, uh, I mean, they can grow barley just fine up there. But this, seriously, this is one of the best places to grow barley in the world. Uh, with the climate that we've got here. But anyway, so there's that. There's the fact that um, uh, we have the local oak species here that we, you know, right away, 2011, we were filling casks made out of Garyon oak. We've got peat. But there's this whole other part of the equation, which is the culture. And uh, a lot of people, you know, I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners here will understand the term terroir, right? It's a term that uh, is, is used a lot in the, in the wine industry. And when most people hear the term terroir, they think about... Um, you know, they think about wine and they think about the, the slope of the vineyard and the, and the exact, you know, calcium carbonate uh, content and all these other things. All this stuff is true. But one of the things that has kind of gone missing in the translation of terroir, which is a French word, to English, is the cultural element. If you speak to somebody who's French, they will include, you know, the culture of the town where things are made. That makes an impact. And when we look at making a whiskey that is evocative of place or expressing terroir, it has to also include that culture. And in fact, it's almost inescapable. You know, we are making it and we are a product of our culture. So very early on, we were leaning into these elements of Pacific Northwest culture. And the the really, to me, I think the really beautiful thing about it was we didn't actually do it on purpose. You know, the Pacific Northwest and the West in general, which is, is kind of like a concentrated version of this idea of possibility that exists in America more broadly, you know, in theory, right? And out here, that idea of the possibility of the future, and we don't have a past here, right? I mean, there's no history of whiskey making here. So everything's about the future. That manifests itself in all sorts of different ways in our culture in the Northwest. And we started making whiskey with that mindset. We said, wait a second, the historical method of making whiskey, which is like to basically say that barley has no flavor impact or terroir doesn't exist, like we can challenge that and there's, a, there's another way to make whiskey here. There's great whiskey being made all over the world, but that doesn't mean it can't be pushed further forward. And that was like really obvious to us, almost like, like what, what are we missing? You know, what, what's, what's the catch here? And the reality is, is that uh, it's, it's safe as a business to be traditional. But you know, we said, look, there's opportunity here. So what you see, as a, you know, what you see from Westland is a reflection of these two things. The fact that this is a great barley growing climate, we, we have all this other stuff in terms of raw materials that we can use here, but we also have this culture that is designed to, to push things forward and to discover new possibilities. Westland is, is very simply the fusion of those two ideas. Very cool. So I want to talk a little bit more about Gariana 
um, which is the, as you said, the sort of native species of oak in the Pacific Northwest. And you mentioned that, you know, kind of almost from the get-go, the idea was to incorporate it into uh, what the into the product. What is working with Garyana like? And, and for people who aren't familiar, how is it different than the sort of traditional white oak that people um, use for bourbon, et cetera? Yeah, so the first thing to understand about um, American white oak, we call that the Quercus, the, it is Quercus alba, but kind of colloquially known as American white oak or just white oak in the whiskey industry is that it grows basically, you know, from Missouri east mm-hmm. all the way to the Canadian border, probably beyond, all the way down to the Gulf. It grows in a huge part of this country. And we use American oak for, our, uh, for many of our expressions. In fact, the majority of them uh, use new American oak. Um, and it's used for the bourbon industry. Those casts then go to Scotland and Japan and other places that make uh, whiskey. So it's ubiquitous, the American white oak. But it doesn't grow here. Yeah. And so for as much as we were interested in using it, we looked and said, okay, Quercus alba doesn't grow here, but we do have this oak species that does grow here, Quercus gariana. And what we learned very quickly was, okay, this species is radically different compared to Quercus alba uh, and the flavor profile. First of all, it grows in such a narrow range. If, if nobody uh, who is listening is familiar with Pacific Northwest geography, and okay, fair enough, um, you know, we live you know, basically along this I-5 corridor here, you know, Vancouver, B.C., uh, Seattle, Olympia, Tacoma, Portland, Oregon, all of these places, this little 50-mile-wide stretch of land, 50 miles wide, that's it, is where this oak tree grows between the two mountain ranges, the Cascades and the Coast Ranges or the Olympics crossing Washington State. So that, like, immediately, the, the geographical restriction is really different compared to the American white oak. Mm-hmm. So... You have all of that. It's also only growing in 5% of its former habitat because many people cut it down when they came to establish uh, cities in the Pacific Northwest. So first of all, it's really, really rare, and you don't have these forests that are growing and managed like you have uh, in Missouri and a bunch of other places. But when it comes to flavor, like, it's wild. I mean, the easiest way for me to describe it is is like the Quercus alba, like the American white oak, but everything is darker. Okay. So if American white oak gives you Caramel, uh, generic baking spices, uh, coconut, that's kind of the, you know, the big three, I would say. Quercus gariana does all of that, but, but darker in forms of like caramel goes to molasses. Generic baking spices becomes heavy clove. It takes all of our fruitiness from our fermentation and turns that dark. So it goes from the bright kind of tropical fruits we get from our Belgian Saison yeast, turns that into like blackberry jam, blueberry jam, things like that. And there's also this really cool, I think the coolest part about it, is this um, like barbecue style smokiness, um, which it has a high phenol content. And if anybody's really familiar with peated whiskeys, uh, peated whiskeys, um, what you're tasting is, is phenolics, these compounds. Um, it also is very high in Quercus gariana. So there's like this like I, I would like burnt ends. If anybody's really yep. familiar with burnt ends, which are amazing, you know, it has that savory smoky element to it. So it's just, it's so different, not only from the Quercus alba from the American white oak, but it's so different from every other species of oak on the planet that's being used to make whiskey. So right away, like when we tasted it three months in, we build a cask, go, okay, we have no idea what's going to happen here. Taste it out of three months, we go, okay, that tastes like Kansas City style barbecue sauce. What? (laughs) What is going on here, you know? And, And over time, we learned... To work with it, and you can't use it in the same way that you can use the Quercus alba. For some of our expressions, they're 100% pure Quercus alba. But we thought, okay, that's too strong. It kind of 
it's too strong for our house style. You need to be more balanced with it. So there's been a lot of learning with that that's come from, you know, along the way to use it in a slightly different way than, than the American white oak. Very cool. I want to come back to something you said about barley and this idea that in traditional whiskey distilling, barley is sort of flavorless. It's, it's there to produce a fermentation or that at least the flavor is invariable, maybe, that it's, that it's always kind of the same thing. And I know that you mentioned that the Pacific Northwest and, and especially kind of the area north of Seattle, the Skagit Valley, is a particularly great place to grow barley. And I know that there's some experimentation going on, going beyond the sort of traditional uh, barley varieties that were that have been used for brewing and distilling. So I know that's a big piece of what you guys are doing and are looking to do in the future. Can you expand upon that, um, kind of what both what you what Westland is doing and also why it's exciting? Yeah, the first thing to understand is that the the shocking difference between the way that the single malt industry operates in its relationship to grain, and this is actually true of, of mostly uh, most of, of, of any whiskey distillery. Um, this is mostly true of, of any whiskey producing countries and their relationship with grain. This is true for bourbon as well. It's also true with rye, but for single malt, which is what applies to us, um, the the idea that single malt in Scotland had not picked up the idea of deriving flavor from malted barley, whereas the immediately adjacent, both geographically adjacent, but also kind of intellectually adjacent idea of brewing had. For hundreds of years, brewers have been using dark roasted malts for flavor. I mean, all of these, you know, you know the major styles of beer produced around the world derive themselves in part or in whole from this idea of malted barley flavor. And that to me, from the very beginning, was like shocking. Like, why is that not? Why is that not coming together? Was the idea that in the distillation process you're just losing that um, whatever differences you would find in just the in the purely fermented product? I mean, that seems like it wouldn't be true. But I wonder if there's just a sort of like, oh, we just distill it anyhow. So you know, uh, how much of that residual flavor from a different kind of malt is is going to remain? So there is there is some of that. Yes, absolutely. But especially in the more modern era, the way that people talk about malted barley, uh, which is incorrect, (laughs) to be clear, but that is the way that they uh, talk about it. But actually, the more that we were thinking about it, the more the actual really provocative answer is that whiskey itself, again, no matter which country it's coming from, has treated itself as a commodity. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is look at again, look at adjacent industries, look at wine. If you were to ask a winemaker why, like, you know, what grape varietal went into this wine? And they said, well, it doesn't matter. Like, that would be preposterous, right? I mean, same thing if you ask a good chef, you know, and the same thing is true in the beer industry. Like, well, does this, you know, what type of malt needs to go into this style of beer? It doesn't matter. The whiskey industry has been a commodity industry. A distiller will make something always the same, always in the highest yielding form that they possibly can, and then, you know, stocks would get bought and sold and traded like commodities because the whiskey industry only really survived because of blending. So what has happened here is not so much a, a, a scientific observation of flavor that has happened in the whiskey industry, is that the whiskey industry is really only just now beginning to realize, okay, wait a second, we can begin to think of ourselves beyond the boundaries of commodity thinking. Like, we don't have to make the same thing out of the highest yielding raw ingredients, the lowest common denominator that you possibly could. Let's think like winemakers. Let's think like brewers. Let's think like chefs. And that think that takes a minute for that 
that mindset to sink in. But that's, that's something that was really evident to us right away. And I think more and more people are figuring that out. Whiskey is at this period where it is booming, right? Whiskey has never boomed like it is today sure. globally. And now I think people are going, okay, there can be something new in the world of whiskey. So then how, how in your experience has moving beyond a sort of conventional or, or sort of traditional style of malted barley, like what does that mean both production side and then, you know, obviously the finished product in the bottle? Yeah. So the first, the first thing was roasted malts, thinking like a brewer. Brewers are using these dark roasted malts. So if you're not familiar with dark roasted malts, it's, it's just like roasting coffee beans. So you take malted barley, which is a sprouted barley, dried, you roast it like a coffee bean, develops different flavors, nutty, chocolatey, pastry, cookie, tobacco, leather, like all sorts of different things are developed naturally by the roasting malted barley. So that from day one, literally from the first cask we ever filled, was the pursuit. And that's become a core part of our house style. So when you buy Westland American Oak, Westland Cherrywood, even Westland Peated, which includes also peated malt, what you are also experiencing is this use of roasted malts. We call it the five malt recipe here at Westland. So uh, pale malt, that's 70% of the, of the blend, and four roasted malts, which bring the spectrum of malt flavor. So if, you, if anybody's had a Westland out there before, guaranteed you will have tasted the product of this thinking of this idea of using roasted malts. But there's more. The, the other part of it is varietal thinking or variety thinking, which again, look at the adjacent wine industry. Winemakers, you know, you know the difference between Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, uh, Pinot Noir. You know, if you drink wine, you understand those things. But that doesn't exist in the whiskey industry because what the whiskey industry asks of the grain industry is the same, conformity. Make it the same. No deviation. Well, and also probably lowest price possible, right? Absolutely. Well, it is that, but it's also, you can, you can get things that are yielding relatively well, but they're just not even interested in asking for something that is different. And if you're a distillery, and this kind of makes sense, so if you're a distillery that has been operating for 200 years in Scotland, and you've got a flavor profile, you've got what we call house style, that is not reliant on the malted barley, you know, it's the shape of the stills and, and the technique, the type of cast you put it in, and all the rest of that stuff, you don't want deviation if you want to make a consistent product. Consistency is your goal. So this has been a big part of the issue is that nobody has wanted to deviate from what is their house style and the way they look at malt. Malt is a, to them, it's a, it's a, it's a canvas upon which the rest of, you know, your distillery showcases different flavor profiles. So that's a really, really kind of different way of thinking of saying there can be different varietal capabilities. So there are, at any given time, in the Western world, so this is true in the U.S., in Canada, in Europe, in the U.K., there are five varieties of barley, give or take, that are approved that are being grown by everybody. So we've, we've produced whiskeys out of 20 different barley varieties here at Westland, which is more, I think, than the whole Scottish whiskey industry combines. But that's because in order to do this, this is, this is where it gets really challenging. In order to do this, you need to go kind of out into the wilderness a little bit. The reason why commodities exist is for safety. That A farmer, you know, in the middle of eastern Washington can grow a barley variety. He can ship it to a grain elevator. He doesn't need to know the operator of the grain elevator. The person in the grain elevator can mix it up with all sorts of other barley from other farms that can go to a maltster, don't need to know the maltster, uh, and the maltster can ship it on to any brewery or distillery. That's, that is true generally across the Western world in our regards uh, to grain. 
So when, you're, when you get out of that system, and there's a guaranteed price for that commodity, yeah. commodity markets, when you get out of that system, you leave the nest, you, know, you leave the safety of that structure. So all of a sudden, you need to find those connections. You need to, the farmer needs to know the distiller, or at the very least, the maltster, who can guarantee that they're going to buy it. So we've got, you know, I've got, I'm showing you on my phone, which is a pretty terrible way uh, <laughs> for the listeners to see this, but here's a red barley variety. Okay. You know, I had never Can seen... Can confirm is Can, red. Yes, okay, so we, you know, just imagine everybody a red barley variety. I mean, I had no idea that stuff existed, mm-hmm. and, if, and if you were a farmer and you wanted to plant a red barley variety to turn into something interesting, you need to know that you're going to be able to sell it. So it really kind of totally restructures the way that we as a community need to interact with each other in, in terms of our relationship to agriculture. So this is why when we started the business, we were able to get into roasted malts right away. That exists, and you can do that with the commodity system. If you want to go off-piste, if you want to go into the wilderness and new, use new barley varieties, red barleys, purple barleys, black barleys, two-row, six-row, you know, spring uh, versus winter, you know, all, if you want to go away from the standard, you need to bring together, you know, the A-team. Yeah. You know, you need, to, you need to get the crew together who say, okay, I'm the maltster and I'm going to help you do this. I'm the grain breeder. I'm going to help you do this. I'm the farmer. I'm interested in growing this grain and I'm the distiller. And we're going to make whiskey out of it. And eventually, the fifth one, probably the most important, is the consumer that's interested in sure. buying something like that. So let's talk a little bit about some of the steps in that process. Um, and let's start with um, maybe the one that was most interesting to me because I just learned it, which is that now Westland is also a farmer. Um, can you talk a little bit about your farm project and, and kind of how that came about and, and what that looks like? Yeah, so the farm project for us, uh, which is very much breaking news, so uh, this is quite exciting to be able to speak about it because we've kept it a secret for about a year. The farm project is, is about furthering our connection to agriculture. When we got into this process of wanting to use different barley varieties, as I mentioned, you need to have all these other people. You need to have the maltster and the farmer, etc. But there's a tremendous amount of risk here. There's a tremendous amount of risk. The first thing is, if you want to go outside of the commodity system for grains, there's no funding for that. There's no money sure. for that. So we are now fully funding uh, a PhD research student um, up at Washington State University, up in, in the Skagit Valley, an hour north of us here in Seattle, who is focused on finding these new barley varietals that can work outside of the commodity system. So he's looking for three things. He's looking to make sure that they are economically viable. You can have something that tastes great or grown organically, but if a farmer can't earn a living growing it, it's useless. Yeah. There's no subsidies for barley. Even if there were, I don't like it on principle, a farmer should be able to earn a living. That's yeah. not an unreasonable thing to ask. Second big thing is to thrive under low-impact environmental conditions. So a lot of people say, oh, it's tough to grow organic grain or whatever it is. But that's because the varieties of grain that were chosen by the commodity system were chosen to thrive under heavily sprayed conditions, so they never sought it out. So um, looking for certified organic, salmon safe, which is a big thing out here in the Northwest, and regenerative agricultural systems, which is really big now, is carbon fixing, putting carbon back into the ground. And last thing, looking for flavor. So looking for novelty and flavor, not conformity, which is what the the, the commodity industry wants, but looking for nuance and novelty, totally like the opposite direction. But what we've discovered, so, so we're fully funding his research there, and that doesn't belong to us. It'll be publicly available. All the information doesn't belong to the university either. There's still risk. And if you're a farmer, you're going to say, okay, Westland and WSU Mount Vernon, uh, 
this crazy red barley variety that you want me to grow, that's nuts. I have no idea how it's going to grow on my farm and my lands because they're not just growing the barley itself, which is in and of itself a risk. But barley, for, for farmers here, especially in the Skagit Valley, barley is a rotation crop. They don't grow barley because they need to grow barley. Barley, like in the Skagit Valley, they grow 80 different crops of commercial significance. Barley is the 80th most wow. valuable crop. It is the least, like, the least valuable crop they can grow, but they need to grow it because barley does a couple of great things. Barley, for every acre of barley that you grow as a farmer, you will yield three tons of barley to the acre, right? So three tons will go to the maltster. It puts eight tons of organic matter back into the ground. Ah. So if you are uh, growing tulips or potatoes or, or spinach seed or all those other things that make them a lot of money, it takes a lot out of the soil. You need to build it back up. You need to restore that soil. So barley does that. It does it really, really well. The other big thing that barley does is in heavy clay-based soils, which we have here in Skagit, the root systems are really strong, break the clay soils apart. Last thing is it helps break disease cycles. So they, they need to be growing barley anyway. So when you say, I want you to grow this red barley variety, you're asking them to not just take a risk on uh, the, the barley crop, but you're also asking them to, you know, what impact will that make on my tulips on the next rotation, which is where they really make their money. Sure. Um, so this is where the farm begins to make a ton of sense for us. We said, okay, that's a fair point. Let's take the risk with you. Okay. And so we bought this farm. We needed, uh, basically found this perfect space for us, which was, it's 80 acres. Only about 20 of them are zoned ag. Uh, basically, it's 20 at the kind of bottom of the hill, and it slopes really gently up um, to the top where the top is not agricultural and not suited for agriculture. And we're putting new rack houses up there. Okay. So at the, at the very bottom of the slope, 20, and we're going to see how much we can keep growing up this hill over time. But certainly this like main 20 acres will be used to take the products that are coming out of this research with Washington State University Bread Lab uh, up in Mount Vernon and say, all right, we're going to test it at scale and we're going to test rotation crops. So if you're a farmer and you want to say, okay, what is the impact on my rotations going to be? Here is a way where we can say, all right, we'll grow potatoes or or radishes on the next rotation and tell you what the impact is going to be so that you can take that with confidence and begin to grow it. And that's what it's about, I think, is shared risk. You know, if you put all the risk on the farmer, which is the way, frankly, that our agricultural system in this country works. All the risk is put on the farmer and very little of the reward goes to them. So yeah. the farm is about sharing risk and being kind of on the cutting edge with them. Very cool. So I have this prompts a couple of questions. One, we'll stick with a farming one and then I want to talk distilling uh, as well on this topic. So on the farming side, is the is one of the the big sticking points in addition potentially to what you mentioned, which is the risk just in terms of what the impact over time with some of these new barley varieties might be to the farm or to their land? Is it also that like great that Westland wants this, but like I would imagine that for any of these varieties to take hold at any scale, other people there have to be other uses and, and it's not as if you know Seattle is a wash in single malt distilleries it is a wash in breweries how do they potentially play a, a role in, in kind of building this uh, sort of maybe alternate um, you know barley economy well you're exactly right and this is part of this idea of going outside of the safety of the nest you know the commodity system everybody knows what's going to happen in the commodity system the brewers you know at least you know what you're going to get you're a brewery or a distillery, 
you know, and that's worth something, frankly. You know, uh, it's worth something to us as producers. It's worth something to the maltsters, the farmers, and actually to consumers as well. In order to do this, there needs to be a very clear, in my mind, a very clear payoff. If you're going to go outside of the commodity system, there needs to be a point to it. I mean, there's a couple of really big bonuses here, which is that we can go for, you know, salmon-safe and certified organic agriculture. And that's that's great. By the way, all of our um, barley sourcing by 2025 will be from sustainable agricultural sources like that. Um, but if you want people to do that, and it costs more money to do that, if you want a brewery to do that, you need to have, what is the selling point, sure. frankly? You know, like, all this stuff sounds great in theory, but you need to be able to sell, I need to be able to sell this whiskey eventually. Yes. Um, and there's a story that comes with that. And I think the story is super compelling on its own, but it needs to pay off in the liquid. Sure. The liquid is what matters. Whether you're a distillery or a brewery, that's what really makes a difference. So that's where like seeking out that flavor from the ground level in the research, that's and where they can test it and test it in brewing environments. They can test it in distilling environments. And the fact that this is open-ended, like you know, somebody, you know, this research is being done now up in Mount Vernon, but a brewery can can jump in and say, hey, what is the status of this? What will be the impact there? We need that. And that's that's why, besides the fact that I think ethically, not owning the research is the right thing to do for Westland, but also it's not really going to ever catch on as a, as a movement, as a new like approach to agriculture, which is really what we're talking about here, if it's not widely adopted. And that means, you know, that means you need to have other people benefit, the brewing industry, other distilleries, and actually beyond just the Pacific Northwest. So that's that's a big part of the plan is to try to just bring, like, it's about community. You know, it's about bringing all these people to the table. Look at what is possible when you begin to use, again, this example, this red barley variety. Use it. Take yeah. some, you know. So on that note, I understand pretty, it seems pretty straightforward to me that as a brewer, say, I could take red barley, make a beer with it, make a few different beers with it, and, you know, brewing is a month-long process-ish. I can do it in relatively small batches. I can taste it and go, oh, interesting. This is how this new strain of barley expresses itself. And maybe I really like it. Or maybe I think, oh, this maybe as a potentially blended with something else or, or finished with something else. Or, you know, brewing is very much about, I think, I've never brewed, but I'm just assuming, or I'm just inferring from what I know, that it's very much about, you know, thinking about these flavors and because of the relatively short time span, you can experiment a lot. I mean, that's why Bring the World Over has had all these different fascinating styles emerge over the last couple of decades because you can do it on a short time scale. Distilling, not so much. So how do you take a look at a, you know, a, a, a raw input like red barley and get to the point of understanding or having some sense of how it will express itself in a finished product after years in a cast without just doing that? Now, I think just doing that is super cool, but like, presumably you have to have some idea before you start filling a bunch of casks with an unusual barley strain. Like, how do you even see that in the future? So the answer is kind of. We kind of need to know where that's going. I think Westland's um, perspective on risk management is bordering on reckless. <laughs> you know, when it comes to like, uh, not, not, you know, just when I, I'm joking, but like when it comes to like how much of new stuff that we source, yeah. you know, like a lot of distilleries would study this to death. I mean, they study in the commodity industry, like the small deviation of a new variety that is basically bred to be exactly the same as the old one. They study that for years and years and years and years. 
So when you say, all right, we're going way out here with this six-row black barley variety, you know, you're, you're really jumping out to the end and you're taking on a lot of risk. So a big part of that is philosophically, nothing will ever get done if you go slow. You're going to take some risk. We're going to try it. And again, if we're, if we're not able to buy this barley at scale, like, well, then the farmers aren't going to grow it. The maltsters aren't going to malt it. So if you want to be a part of this, you're going to have to kind of jump in. So again, it's part of that is sharing risk. But there is some underlying science behind it. The first thing is, where do we derive flavor from in whiskey from barley? Um, and again, a lot of dist- distilleries today will say that there is no such thing as flavor from barley, which is nonsense. But when you look at it, um, there's a couple things. One, there's the oil content in the barley. So oils, um, which will become, they're going to get heavy into science here, folks, so buckle up. But like fatty acids fatty acid esters, these are responsible for a lot of the fruity components of flavor um, in whiskeys today, across the board. Um, so you have that component that will vary between varieties. It, it varies between grains. Uh, it also varies between varieties. But there's also a lot of, you know, the individual compounds in, um, in barley, like amino acids. When those undergo uh, fermentation, the yeast will eat some amino acids and do something interesting with them. They'll disregard others. How individual strains react to individual amino acids, produce different flavors. That is known and understood. How that applies to new barley varieties is not, that connection has not been made yet, but I think it's fairly intuitive. The other big thing, which is interesting, especially uh, for everybody who's listening, who's interested in wine, is that a lot of these um, color barley varieties, the reds and the blues and the purples, those colors are coming from compounds called anthocyanins. Oh, really? Aha, so I see you understand. So, a little bit. Yeah, so anthocyanins, again, for people who aren't super familiar, are linked in, in, in wine grape skins to, well, the color that you see in wine grape skins, but also linked to varietal flavor. And if you've got more information on that, please tell me because I'm not the expert. <laughs> but um, but that, that, those anthocyanins in barley, it stands to reason that if that's happening in wine, that is also happening with these varieties. Interestingly enough, black barley varieties, the the color pigmentation of black is melanin. Oh, interesting. So it's actually a totally different thing. So we don't really know yet uh, what the rationale is there, even though we're using black barley varieties too. So there's a lot of like theory that's drawn from, again, adjacent industries. But this, frankly, this is how we figured out the roasted malt thing. There was no established literature on roasted malt flavor in, in whiskey, but it's, you know, you look at the types of flavors that are produced by roasted malts, you kind of do the math in your head and look at the chemistry and go, is this going to produce flavor and we were right for a lot of that stuff. Um, with this, it's following a lot of the same logic. And the thing is, to be very clear, we're going to be wrong about some things. You know, that's that's part of the nature of it. But it's a hell of a lot more fun to just like, <laughs> give it a go. You know, and and this is how you really drive change too. Excellent. So one last question for you, Matt. You know, you talked about driving change, and you talked about you know just kind of this idea of to some extent stepping outside of this existing commodity market for, in particular for uh, barley, putting on your prognosticator cap for a moment, if, or maybe your wish casting hat for a moment, looking 10 to 15 years in the future, is, the, is your goal to be outside of the commodity market entirely um, when it comes to grain or, or, or all inputs? Or, or do you think that the, there's still a, a flavor argument in favor of um, you know, commodity barley. I certainly think that there is a flavor argument in favor of commodity barley, or maybe the better way to put it is is um, the known quantity. 
again, the risk element of it. It's not like, you know, a lot of the barley varieties in the commodity industry are chosen to not have a ton of flavor, but it's not like they taste bad. Sure. So especially when you look at roasted malts, you know, roasted malts, you're taking this commodity barley industry for most of well, everything that is available today, we're changing that, but everything that is available today in roasted malts is the commodity variety, but roasted different ways. And again, that's how all these different beer styles are created, and they're wonderful. It's not like we're lacking there necessarily. It's just that there, there can be a parallel uh, system that develops that is more about these things that are things that the commodity industry cannot do by definition. Sure. And it will, it will cost more money to do that. It does cost more money to do that. Does it? We hope that that delta comes down in time. But you know, I think by let's see, by 2025. We will be at 100% sustainable agriculture, so basing salmon safe, uh, but certif- certified organic, a lot of that, and then regenerative and regenerative organic on top of that. But I would say by 2025, probably 75% at least of the barley resource, which today is an acre of barley every day, every single day, uh, will be off the commodity system, okay. which is really kind of a big deal for us here. Um, yeah, you can't see the look on Matt's face. It's <laughs> it's excitement and maybe just a little bit of fear. That's exactly how I feel. I mean, but that's but that's the fun stuff, you know. So, and that's you know we're getting into these. Oh man, we're getting into these amazing things that I could go on here. But like, like we're looking at the the research that's going on with barley right now. Like we're developing new barley varieties with with the WSU Bread Lab that have higher genetic diversity as a variety, which means that they're not as genetically pure, which means they can adapt to climate change better. So in a rapidly changing climate that we have, more genetic diversity within a, a stock of stuff you sow in the field means that it can adapt to heat waves, you know, floods, or you know, a variety of things like that. It, it can react um, really quickly to that as a species. But then it also like changes what it means when we say malted barley. And that's quite dramatic. Like when we say malted barley, what people think of in their heads is this pale tan thing, it all looks the same, it malts the same, tastes basically the same everywhere you get it in North America. And now we're saying it's not going to look the same. When you buy malted barley, like even one variety, even this red barley variety, that it will look different within it. It will have genetic diversity. And it's just like, that's just such a cool place to go, <laughs> you know, isn't it? Like, yeah. Um, but there's the risk there. It's like, yeah, we're jumping off into this place where nobody knows about this stuff yet. This is it. I mean, this is the cutting edge. So the, the, to loop it back to your earlier question about beer, that beer, you've got, okay, you can take this, make beer out of it, sell it a month later. We've got some time to basically, like, show people what is possible. And that's kind of, you know, what is happening right now is we're working on these projects, and some of these, you know, barley varieties won't ever sell. We won't sell until 2030. Sure. But we want to be ahead of the game here, and we think very much this is the future. Excellent. Well, Matt, thank you so much. Uh, always fascinating to talk and to hear what you and – Uh, your team here at Westland are experimenting with and envisioning for the future. So again, thanks so much for your time. And also very nice to see you in person. Yeah. Great to see you as well. If I can, if I can add one more quick pitch here for everybody, if you're interested um, in seeing what this is like, this work that we're talking about in terms of seeking out new barley varieties and different agricultural systems, we've been doing this since 2012. And the first whiskey that is made from this is just now launching. Oh, wow. It's so that's called Colere. Uh, which is a Latin word. It means to cultivate, which is we thought a perfect term, reestablishing our relationship to barley and agriculture. So Calaria Edition 1 is just launching now. It may be the most important whiskey with a capital I that we've ever made. Very cool. So, and we'll include a link in the show description for those of you who want to know a little more about it. 
Well, yeah, thanks so much, Matt. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also... I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.